Good morning. It's good to see everybody in church today on this super Sunday. Uh, I'm glad you're all here. Good morning, everybody up in the Well Cafe. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I serve as the lead pastor here for this worship community that we call the Well at First Methodist Mansfield. I'm glad you're all here. If you brought your Bible with you today, uh, if, if you would please turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have one with you, we have blue ones in both spaces. You can find Luke chapter 10 in that Bible as well. Turns out it's in all Bibles. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. Uh, page 1615, uh, if you're using that blue bobble and you're looking for it. Uh, there's not going to be any slides on the screen today. Usually I would show that page number up there um, because, uh, well, I'll tell you why in just a minute. Uh, this is the final message of our series on the Bible. Uh, and it's been, in, in this particular seri- uh, message, is focused on wrestling with the Bible, or as we say here in Texas, wrestling with the Bible. <laughs> And honestly, it's proven to be quite an appropriate title because I have wrestled with this message all week. I have written it four and a half times, and it's still being written right now. Uh, It's full. I mean, there was so much to say, so much to cover, so much that I know we all are curious about and that we wrestle with and that we have questions about. It's just impossible. There's just not enough time to go through all of it. Um, So what my hope was... Uh, is to share something that's from my heart um, that I am currently wrestling with that I, I think maybe a lot of us wrestle with too. Um, maybe we don't wrestle with it personally, but we wrestle with it being around it. And uh, I hope to share, share that today um, in, in, a, in a humble way. And so that's why it's still being written. It's, it's all written out. All the words that I would normally write are there um, but we'll see how God moves and, and how that might change even in this moment, which is a very vulnerable moment uh, for me. So uh, forgive me if, if it sounds incoherent. We've spent the last four weeks of this series talking about the Bible. We've been examining it. It's been on the operating table as we have looked at it. Uh, we spent last week talking about some very practical hands-on strategies for spending time with the Bible. And we spent the weeks previous to that discussing what the Bible is, why we need it, uh, and what's inside of it. And we kind of narrowed that framework down as a way of understanding what we read when we spend time with it to this very simple statement that the Bible is the story of God as told by the people of God. And we find that story through the person of Jesus, we look at Jesus, then we can see God's story, and we begin to see how God's story unfolds throughout the biblical narrative. I want to begin today by talking about what I mean by wrestling with the Bible. Because it's changed for me. It used to mean one thing, and now it means something different. Most of my life, I've understood uh, the Scripture and the Bible, and the way I interact with it is that every passage, every story, every little piece of the Bible had this single piece of truth buried within it. Even the ones I didn't understand, there was this piece of truth that I needed to find. And if I could find it, it would make my life make sense. It would make my questions about existence make sense. And it would help me in all my arguments with my friends about things, right? Like, I I needed to understand the truth. And some of that was really easy to find. You would read the scripture and it would be be apparent. You'd read Psalm 46, and God is my refuge and my strength. Present help in a time of trouble. Like, you don't need to do much digging there. There's something very comforting about that when you read it. Something that that resonates within our souls and a deep need that we have. It was a pretty easy one. Certainly there's a lot to unpack there. 
but it was pretty good on its own. But others were a little harder. You'd read other things and you'd like, where is the truth in this? Where's God in this story? What am I supposed to take away from this? It was a little harder. So I understood wrestling as sort of excavating in the Bible, looking for that single nugget of truth, right, that was supposed to change my life and help me change other people's lives. Simply put, wrestling for me was about looking for answers to the questions I had. That's what it was. That's what the Bible was there for. It had all the answers, and I just had to find them. If I prayed hard enough, and I read enough, and I studied, and I listened to the right people, then I would find the right answers, right? And that would guide me in my life and help me guide others. I didn't want any ambiguity. I wanted cold, hard facts, something that was timeless and universal and, and, and moral, something that I could take with me and would walk with me for the rest of my life and that has been true for centuries and will continue to be true into the future. I wanted to be certain about what that meant for me. But what I'm learning is that wrestling with the Bible is, is more than finding answers. Wrestling with the Bible is, is more than just excavating for some truth. In fact, as we'll find, there are pieces of Scripture that have loads of truth. They're multivalent and dynamic, and to try to pick one thing out of it would be totally to cut off how powerful that, that Scripture is. Certainly, we go to the Bible to try to find God's unfolding story in Scripture, to know God's will, to understand how God operates in this world, so that we can then begin to see God's story unfolding out in front of us here in our world. But it's not simply about finding answers, and it's definitely not about uh, getting rid of all uncertainty. I would say that I'm learning that certainty seems to, more often than not, get in the way of our faith. Because once we're certain of something, we know it all. There's nothing left to know because I'm certain of what the answer is. I have no more room to grow because I have done all the growing necessary when it comes to this thing. My certainty, no matter how virtuous it is, my certainty is making a statement about what I do not need to know any more of. I, I know it all now. I can move on to the next thing. What I'm discovering is that wrestling with the Bible is not about finding answers. It's about asking hard and honest questions and continuing to do so as we continue to grow. Questions, I know, sometimes are viewed as the opposite of faith, right? You might have been told that. Maybe you've grown up in a place or in a faith community where questions weren't really all that valued unless you ask the right question, which is, uh, you know, what, what book of the Bible should I read? And then they would answer that question for you. Like, that, that's a great question. Uh, too often churches have been the most risky places for people to be spiritually honest and ask questions about their faith. To expose the parts of them that are like, I don't, I don't know what this means. And I don't know why it's important to know it. You know, we all just agree to this thing. Like, we, really? Resurrection? Seriously, though, right? Like, we believe that. We believe that. And, and, and we feel like we can't ask questions about it because it is sort of at the bedrock of our faith, right? And people get really nervous. Right? Like, don't, don't, don't ask that question. It just happened, okay? Just have faith and believe, right? <laughs> the questions are not the opposite of faith. And the church should not be a risky place. It should be the most safe place 
place to be spiritually honest and to ask questions and to wrestle with our faith. And it has to be, in fact. But questions to me are not the opposite of the faith. For me, just to settle you down, this church is definitely a very safe place to be spiritually honest and ask questions. For me, questions are a sign of an active faith. A sign of wonder and curiosity. It's a sign of wrestling. Good questions guide us to deeper understanding and, and richer truth. They guide us down this path. To me, Scripture is laying the path before us. Uh, not Scripture, sorry. Questions lay the path before us to discovery. If we don't ask questions, we just stand still in what we already know. But when we ask questions, this, the path is laid before us on where we will go to discover new things. In fact, if you read through Scripture, I'm finding more and more that the, the people of the deepest faith in Scripture are not the people with the best answers. It's the people that ask really good questions, that wrestle with God, that in some ways challenge God. Abraham did this, right? The first person of faith that we all grew out of, right? And, and there's a scene where God is, is out and Abraham's standing out there looking over this city and, and it's going to be destroyed. And, and Abraham's asking, like, does it really have to be like that? Really? Questions are a sign of deep faith. And through the Gospels, Jesus has asked many sorts of questions by many sorts of people. And in all of his Jesus-iness, he does a super annoying thing where he never really flat out answers people. <laughs> Come on, if we're supposed to believe all the right things, just tell us. But he doesn't. People ask him questions. And he does a super annoying thing where he asks them a question. You're Jesus, we asked you. And then he tells him a story, and it's like, God, I don't know, I give up on this guy. <laughs> but he does that to push people deeper inside themselves so that they can expose those parts of them that ask that question, that lead them to ask that question, into deeper places of their heart and soul to examine things that might have gone long unexamined. Let's look together at Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. We're going to see this question uh, thing taking place. On one occasion, an expert in the law, expert in the law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question we all ask, right? That's why you're here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. See, you knew the answer all along. But he, the expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, he pushed Jesus further. And who is my neighbor. It seems that this guy already knew the answer to the questions that he was asking. I mean, he's an expert after all, right? Why was he asking? You might be surprised to know that there's a great sense of pride among the religious people, that we are quite certain of what is right and wrong, who's good and who is not, who's in, who's out. And for this man, it seemed pretty clear to him too. He, he knew he knew where the line was. He, he was a very faithful and religious man. I say that with all earnesty. I think sometimes we really just caricature 
uh, the people that wrestle with Jesus in Scripture. But you got to think of it. I mean, this guy knew his Scripture inside and out. He was a faithful man. He wanted to be deeply religious. But he also already knew the answer. He was not asking Jesus so that he could listen to Jesus. He wanted confirmation that he was right. He wanted confirmed what he already believed and knew for himself. The man had already made his mind up. He was certain of his answer. But it turns out that it was a very important question, a significant question. And Jesus obliges by telling a story. The story is of a Jewish man traveling the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And then he gets jumped by a band of robbers who beat him severely, rob him, and they leave him there for dead in a ditch. Now, you've probably heard this story before, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of those, the truth is pretty evident in this one, stories. We've read it all of our lives. It's a great story that we tell. It's a nice story. Um, And we already kind of know what it means, but we're going to keep going anyways. This man's lying in the ditch, and a priest is walking down the road. Can you imagine You have a flat tire, you get in a wreck, and you're off in the ditch, and that person left, and then you see Pastor Johnny driving down the road, like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) And I look, and I'm like, quickly, like, oh, hmm? The priest sees the man, uh, but doesn't help him. Walks around the other side of the road, quickly by him. Next, we have... Uh, A Levite, also a very religious uh, person, leader, uh, he walks by, sees the man, but doesn't stop to help him. That's pretty cold. But let's try to cut him some slack, give him a little break. They had probably some very important religious things to do. They are important religious people. Plus, if you know Scripture, uh, there's lots of ritual cleanliness laws that they would have been breaking had they gone anywhere near that man or touched him. Which meant that whatever important business they had to attend to, they could no longer do because they would be unclean. They can't fulfill their job or continue on with their ministry. And maybe most importantly, this guy was beaten and robbed. This is probably a trap. The robbers are just waiting for some poor sucker to come help this guy, and then they're going to get robbed too. And so they move on. It's unsafe here. We're just going to keep going. But then comes along a Samaritan man. Now, I don't have the, the time to tell you the whole history between Jews and Samaritans. Many of you understand, at least to some extent, that there's some tension, to put it lightly, right? There's some tension. They hate each other. And, and the Jewish people look down on Samaritans. They're unclean and unworthy people. They, they, were, they were not part of God's plan and purposes, and they would often just walk around them even if they weren't beaten up in a ditch, right? Like, they just didn't want to be around them. They despised them. They hated each other. This, this, was, this, was not, this was not just some misunderstanding. This was a deep hatred between two groups of people. So at this point, the expert in the law is hearing this. And here's a Samaritan man. He's already understanding these other two people that should have helped didn't help, right? He's got all these excuses in his head, probably thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. This is probably why. Let's cut him some slack. But then Jesus says the word Samaritan man walking by, and he can almost see what is about to happen. The story is making him squeamish and squirm because the Samaritan man doesn't walk around the guy in the ditch. 
Instead, he stops and he helps. He responds in a way that any of us would hope he would respond if we were lying in the ditch. Even the expert in the law, as much as he despised the Samaritan man, probably would really appreciate his help in that moment if he was lying in the ditch. But it is also starting to understand that if those roles were reversed, he might not be so willing to stop and help. We've often read this passage as a nice story, heartwarming. It talks a little bit about you know, being a good person and helping others and, and being surprised when the least likely among us helps people. And it, it is a good story for that. It does tell that story, and, and it should inspire us to go out and be good people. We throw that phrase, Good Samaritan, around a lot to mean exactly that. We know what the story means in that way. But to make that the main point of the story, I would think would miss the point. But I don't think the expert in the law missed the point. For him, this was not a heartwarming story. This was an offensive message to him. It was a pointed message from Jesus to expose the sin of this man's heart. To expose the sin of all of those that sat and listened to the story And as that name, Samaritan, came up, the anger and resentment and the pain that welled up within them, it was meant to convict them. It was meant to expose the sins of entire communities who have spent their lives hating each other and justifying it through Scripture. This was not a nice story. It was a scandalous story. Jesus told this in an effort to rebuke this expert and to confront the hatred and the pride and the contempt that was in his heart. And it reaches its pinnacle, its apex, when Jesus asks this question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert, who knew the answer, knew what Jesus was getting at, couldn't even bring himself to be specific. He just said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What I'm learning here is that throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is the most critical of the most confidently righteous people. The people that got it all figured out, the most religious, the most well-attended at church, they pray the most, they're the most certain, they're the most, I mean, they're the most certain, they're confident that they're right, that God must surely agree with them and be on their side, and they have chapter and verse to back it up. They make claims, and they stand there, and they say things like, the Bible is clear on this issue, And Jesus confronts those people the most in Scripture. The people that are the most certain that they are right. The most certain that they have nothing left to learn. Especially somebody like Jesus. And they're surprised after they've drawn the line in the sand when they look up and they see Jesus standing on the other side of it. They're shocked. How, Jesus, you've read the same Scriptures I've read. How could you be over there? 
They're shocked and, and they're offended. How could they be wrong? How could they have gotten this wrong? Like, I've, I've been so faithful. I've listened to so many people. How, how could I be wrong about this? This, this floored me a few years ago when, when I noticed this. How could I have missed, in all my years of reading the Good Samaritan, how could I have missed the fact that the whole time that I'm pointing the finger and, I, and I'm scoffing at the expert in the law, thinking, what, this idiot, like, how did he not know this? How could he be so shallow? How could he be so narrow, right? How could he be so prideful as to not know that? As if somehow I had, the mon- I had a monopoly on, like, what Jesus means with everything, right? And somehow I knew all along, and I had nothing to learn from this story. What I began to realize is that every parable of Jesus, every story of virtue in the Bible, I was so quick to place myself in the shoes of the protagonist, the good guy, the one that did right in the story. I would place myself in their shoes, and I would think either A, that's what I do, or B, that's what I should be doing, right? We all do that. When we read the Good Samaritan, we immediately place ourselves in the shoes of the Samaritan which is not bad. That's good. We sh- if we all acted like the Samaritan, this world would be a fantastic place to live in. But the reality is that, that Jesus was not meaning for me to stand in the place of the Samaritan, at least not fully. He certainly wants me to act like the Samaritan. But if Jesus was here telling this story right now, guess who's the expert in the law? Expert's a loose term, but it's me. That's the shoes I should be standing in. And when I read this thinking like, there's nothing scandalous about that to me, then, then the potency of the gospel in this message has run out. Because that's what the gospel is. I was losing so much by by not finding myself over and over again scandalized by the ridiculousness of the gospel. That I realized that the gospel is, at one time, it's attractive, right? Like, it brings people in. It says, guess what? You are loved by God. It doesn't matter. God loves you. You are accepted. You are, come on. It is, it is in one way, it is attractive. And in other ways, it's repulsive. It rejects things. And we see that here. Jesus is not rejecting this person, but he is rejecting something within them. And he's saying, this is what the gospel is. And when I have lost my ability to be confronted by the gospel, to be scandalized by it, to to find some part of me that is repulsed by the gospel, then the gospel has lost its potency in my life. There's something that must be taking place within me. When I'm wrestling with the Bible, I'm not really wrestling, because this this doesn't fight back. I'm wrestling with myself. I'm wrestling with my own certainty, my own self-righteousness and pride. I'm wrestling with my own fear. I'm wrestling with those pieces of me that I like to keep hidden from Jesus, 
right? All the other parts that, oh, Jesus, come on into my heart and look at all this, and I clean the place up for you, and great, right? Oh, yeah, don't go in that room. That's where I crammed all the stuff when I cleaned, right? Don't go in there. I like that stuff. It's a part of me. So I keep it hidden away, tucked away from that light of Christ that exposes those dark, cobwebby places in us. Some places that we might have even forgotten are in there. They've become so a part of us, so ingrained in us, and in some ways so entangled with our faith that we've almost justified their presence in there. When I spend time in Scripture, I, I, I do so to, to be curious and to ask questions and to, to discover new and meaningful things about God's story, to, to, to be inspired and encouraged by the ever-expansive love and grace of God and, and how I am empowered and entrusted with the gospel to go and do likewise. Little old me and little old you. I discover things like that that are encouraging and inspiring but I also hope to discover things about myself. That would be rough. Every day I'm finding out new things. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, you know. But I do hope that from time to time, there are things, there are questions that are raised about myself that I'll attend to. And that's uncomfortable. Because we don't like being wrong. We don't like tension. We don't, we don't like uncertainty. I don't like that. It's very uncomfortable for us. It's uncomfortable to be convicted of something. And, and that's when we often escape it. We, we shove it back in the closet or we, we lean on, you know, some phrase from Scripture or from faith that we've used to, to, uh, to put a bandage over those parts of us that, that get confronted by Christ and we, it makes us feel better so we don't have to sit, sit there in that discomfort But Christ calls us further and further in the most loving way possible to confront those parts of us that we don't want to. To ask questions that we have long forgotten how to ask. We shouldn't be afraid of the questions that we have about Scripture. That, that's, that's just exposing mystery, right? Like we know that there's mystery and it fosters curiosity and it helps us to stay engaged in Scripture. What we should be more concerned about are the things that we have stopped asking questions about, the things that we're so certain of that we don't even need to ask anymore. We got that part. Or the, or the places of us that fear to question. If a question does arise, that we don't want to go there because I don't really want to dig too deep because I'm afraid of what we might find down in there. Those are the questions that we should be asking. And it takes a great deal of humility to do so. A great deal of humility to, stay, to say, even though I see, there's still a lot I don't see. That though I know, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot to be known. Now we mistake a message for like this to say, well, like, you can't know anything, Right? Just walk around like a zombie and just keep learning and soaking all this stuff in and don't stand for anything and don't have any convictions and don't let your beliefs turn into a faith that is some sort of active, right? Because, uh, because then you're taking a stand somewhere and you can't know everything, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is once we've hit the place of certainty, 
we have then drawn the line. And we've said this is where it ends, this is where faith ends, and this is where faith begins, right? Like this is, this, this is the line. Humility, on the other hand, recognizes the tension, recognizes that things aren't as simple and cut and dry as I would like them to be, realizes that I'm not as smart as I think I am, realizes that everybody doesn't want to hear necessarily what I have to say, or maybe what I have to say is not that unique. Everybody says that. Humility is understanding that there is, while I do have an opinion, while I do have some feelings, some convictions around a concept, idea, policy, etc., that it's not as easy as I sometimes make it out to be. And it's not as cut and dry as I would like people to think it is. That there is a tension between what we want sometimes and what actually is. This is the kind of humility that uh, is the, seems to be the posture of a disciple. Somebody who follows Christ, right? Who listens. Who listens to one another, which we've seemed to forgot, uh, forget how to do. A disciple that has a direction and that walks intently, that has convictions and beliefs. But above all things, above the knowledge, above it all, a disciple that has faith. Faith is not certainty. Faith is trust. And when you have to place your trust in something, that means you don't know all of it. You're stepping out in faith. We are called to be those people. Disciples, people of faith, people that, uh, that are inspired by God's call, by Christ's call to love God and love each other and serve. A faith that keeps us walking behind our Lord and Savior Jesus, scratching our heads as he continues to surprise us and astound us with the way in which his grace works. How generous it is and scandalous it is. A faith that's willing to ask hard and honest questions of God and of ourselves and to sit in the discomfort as we hear the answers. A faith that trusts Jesus with our entire life. All of it that lets him in so he can begin to loosen and untangle some of those loyalties and allegiances that we have tangled up with our faith. Some of the fear that we have mixed in there and justified with our faith. That we let the light of Christ in to expose that so we can begin wrestling with it. A faith that is understood as forever unfinished. Because there is constantly more that Christ wants to show us. A faith that though it is imperfect and unfinished, has been called by Christ himself to follow. To join him at his table. And a faith that is willing to bear the cost of following Christ. That's what it means to wrestle. And today, as we share in communion, we've all been invited to share that same table. To share in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. To shrink before the power of God's grace. To be humbled by the generosity of that grace toward us. But to be scandalized by how far that invitation actually extends and to whom. And as we share this holy meal... We remember that the body and blood of Christ, broken and poured out for the sake of the kingdom of God, that we are called to that same sort of costly grace if we're going to follow, if we are going to go and do likewise. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your mystery and your majesty, 
for your grace, God, and for your conviction as you shine your light of love and mercy in our hearts, God. Encourage us, inspire us, but also challenge us, God, as we go forth to be more like your son, to be people of faith and disciples of Christ. In your name we pray, amen.